Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocalent Podcast. Microsoft this week has held its annual Surface event in New York. We are expecting a fairly standard refresh of the company's various Surface ranges, which we got. But we also got two new foldable devices and the launch of a variant of Windows 10 to run one of them on. Dan has been following all the news to bring us more on the big announcements. Meanwhile, I've been chatting to Jesse Duraduska at Square. Jesse is CEO Jack Dorsey's right-hand man and the man behind Square's hardware design. Previously the director of engineering for Apple's iPhone, iPad and iPod accessories business, we talked to him how Square hopes to revolutionize payments at your local store and restaurant and how we're heading towards a cashless society. And Chris on the team walks us, or should I say runs us, through the new Garmin Fenix 6. What's good, what's bad and having run extensively with it, his verdict on whether you should get one. But Dan, First, over to you. Tell us what Microsoft has been up to. Well, it was quite a fascinating event, really. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of tech launches we go to now, we've got all the leaks in advance. Um, say the upcoming Pixel event, um, that Google are doing in a couple of weeks. We know pretty much what's going to be announced at that. Um, but Microsoft actually did actually spring a surprise. So um, that was that was quite pleasing in a way. They um, Exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, they launched not only yeah refreshes of their existing ranges. Surface Laptop Three is new um, with some. Um, uh, there's a 15 inch variant now, um, and um, one of that that's got AMD processing, so that's that's interesting but you know uh, iterative. Um, a new Surface Pro Seven that's basically only got new chips and uh, a USB C port, um, but we also got sort of three new key devices. Plus, we also got some um, Surface earphones that uh, are quite interesting. They're true mobile, they're true wireless um, earphones, just like um, just like AirPods are. Um, but they um, actually do um, some Spotify control and have um, Office three six five integration. So quite interesting. They're they're a bit ugly though. They're quite mm. big and round. Yeah, they look a bit weird. I've um, seen some pictures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but more interesting than that, yeah, three new three new sort of brand new devices in the in the surface range um, we've got surface pro x which is um a arm based device which has been developed with qualcomm that's pretty similar to surface pro in many ways but is is a is thinner and lighter um but will be always connected as part of is part of qualcomm's um always connected um, series of pieces they've been doing um and then uh we've got two new brand new devices which are basically dual screen foldable um, mini mini uh, surfaces, um, Surface Neo, which is almost like two iPad minis shoved together, um, and then Surface Duo, which is a smaller version but runs Android and all and also it uh, it can make phone calls. Um, it's a, it's a phone basically, so it's the long-awaited Surface Phone. Um, the Android element of it is interesting because um, it's been developed with Google, so we're expecting it to run um, 
stock Android in many ways, um, but but Microsoft have got a lot of Android apps now. They obviously do Office on um, on Android, so we're expecting expecting quite good app integration and multitasking between the screens there. So that's that, that that's that's the sort of most interesting element of that. So let's talk us through. So we've got two, basically a foldable device, but it's not got a foldable screen, and so it's two separate screens. And this is not out until holidays 2020 yeah, so um neo which is the larger one which still runs windows 10 but a special variant called windows 10 x um and surface duo are not out until yes this time next year um the main reason for that is that microsoft wants developers to get involved uh, the, uh, the the old Microsoft adage of trying to sort of get as many developers on board as possible. Um, developers, developers, developers. Developers, developers, developers. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so I think with particularly with the Windows 10X, which is the Neo, um, it need it will need a lot of bespoke app development. Um, I you know the the Windows Store will still be on there, but I think be, be, because the, because you can sort of multitask between the screens, it's still going to need quite a bit of work. Um, and I guess we'll find a lot more about that at Microsoft's Build Developer Conference, which is in May. Now you see this is somewhat this is somewhat confusing for me because it's the the Duo is an Android phone that's not a phone. Yeah. So I'm curious of why that's waited, why they're waiting that long, why they're waiting to 2020 to launch that. I can understand partly with the Windows X. I want to say 10 for some reason, Windows 10, 10. Um, I can understand with Windows X because it's a new it's a new variant of operating system. I presume over the next year we'll find a number of things that well, how it's different and what what it can do and what it can't do and, and all the functionalities of that. But it does it, it does feel strange launching something because that felt to me from afar felt that this was the sort of you know that those two announcements the duo and the neo have dominated the the announcement it's like oh oh and they've actually launched some 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 really cool surface devices that i can go buy tomorrow or in the next couple of weeks and you know and really enjoy and, and we'll see a massive leap forward from what i've what i've had last year or you know the year before or whatever yeah i think i because we were expecting the refreshes of the the main devices and then we were expecting the ARM-based Surface, which is Pro X. Um, and that would have been enough in many ways with the, the earphones as well. Um, so, you know, the, the fact it did that they did the the Neo and then the Duo was quite quite something, really. Um, I guess with, with Duo, a part of it is hardware-related. I mean, it, it's running uh, Qualcomm Snapdragon 855 um, in the, it, on the demo units that, that, that were at the event. Um, now, we, we would expect that it would have Snapdragon 865, which will, which will be launched in December um, when, that, when that comes out. And so that will be 5G. So um, it, 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 that has an integrated 5G. So um, I would have thought that by the time it, by the time it comes out, the, the sort of marriage of hardware and software will be a lot better. But you're right, of course, that it is an Android phone. So why isn't it launching now? I think there's that. I think Microsoft wants to do um, a lot of those uh, uh, sort of over-the-top services that um, that can mm. make make the dual screen work properly and and really make the best of that experience for for people uh, because that is really how it's going to differentiate these devices. I mean, it, it, because it's Android, it's it's effectively just a dual screen Android phone in the same way as we've seen from LG and others. So, 
Yeah, and that's the second question. I mean, the Surface range was originally created, or I felt it was always originally created because Microsoft wanted to show what was possible with a laptop or with a two-in-one or, you know, that kind of device. And it was kind of getting frustrated that apart from the likes of Dell and Lenovo, a lot of manufacturers were kind of not producing something cool enough to showcase. Do you think that's going to be, you know, it's obviously turned Microsoft Surface has turned into a very successful part of Microsoft's business. And, you know, and you see a lot of surfaces around. They're doing, you know, it's a, that business is doing great guns. Do you think this is partly a kind of also a play to say to other manufacturers, the Asus's, the Aces, the Dells, whatever, look, there's a new form factor in town. Get building, get get making. And, and hopefully then by the time we come out, you still won't have had the design control and the ethos to do this. And, and people will still will still go for hours but at the same time it kind of you know the market expands to a lot more foldable dual screen devices yeah i think that's definitely the case with um with the surface neo that actually um because it's running windows 10x which is like a cut down version of windows um there's no reason why that couldn't be on other people's devices so i think that is a bit of a, a trojan horse for that kind of market um and and by encouraging app developers to get involved obviously that would encourage other um uh, other manufacturers to get on board as well still to come chris gives us his verdict on the new garmin phoenix 6 i'm going to annoy you i'm not going to talk about the good i'm going to tell you a little story instead and it's a story about garmin because as soon as you say garmin you immediately now think about sports devices because they have this hugely long heritage of making lots of different running and multi-sport watches. In 2011, Jerry Dorodusco was Director of Engineering at Apple, tasked with designing accessories for the iPod, iPhone and iPad. But all that changed when Square CEO Jack Dorsey lured him away to become the head of hardware at Square. His task? To help create products many of us have used but probably aren't aware of when we shop. Now, eight years later, the company has launched its latest credit card terminal, £199 box of tricks that it believes will help small businesses bring a much-needed technology boost to helping customers pay their bill. I started by asking what Square actually does and where Jesse sees it going over the next couple of years. So from the very beginning, we've built tools for small businesses, individuals, entrepreneurs, people that didn't even know they were businesses yet, and trying to include them in the economy. Credit card acceptance is still a relatively exclusive club globally. Half the businesses in the UK don't accept credit cards. And uh, Jack Dorsey and our co-founder Jim McKelvey just made two easy observations. The first was that everyone was carrying around a supercomputer connected to the internet. And uh, second, that with even that power, most people can't accept a credit card, even though there are a billion of them floating around in the world. So we have been building tools for small businesses to include them in the economy from the very beginning. And as we've grown, we've grown with our businesses and built more and more tools for them, which include an amazing software platform that lets them be successful in running their business however they run their business, whether it's a small shop, multiple locations, multiple employees, casual seller, invoices online, whatever it is, we can build tools for them now. And so do you see this evolution of the next product, the sort of taking away from the little puck that people tap? is? Is it trying to grow up the experience, or, or do you see it in a different way? I think of it as expanding. Uh, in some cases, it's growing up, but in some cases, it's just reaching more people who have different sets of needs. The early insights included using the smartphones and tablets that people have in their everyday life and adding to it the simplest thing we can do to include card acceptance, and those are our card readers. 
In the case of the Square Terminal, the insight is that many businesses don't want to run on a personal device, that a store owner isn't going to turn over their personal phone and their PIN and their iTunes ID or their Google Play Store ID to all their employees and might be managing across multiple locations. And what they're in search of ongoing is simplicity. And when we can pack in all the hardware and software and a printer that they need in a terminal, they'll be better off in some cases. Now, certainly in the UK, we've moved to, you know, there are big reports coming out from the Bank of England and, and things like that about a cashless society. And do you see that as this as being an enabler of that? Or do you see it sort of, we're, not, we're a long way yet from going completely cashless? There's very obviously a trend toward card use. Uh, cash is on the decline. Uh, we can debate or whether or not it's going to zero. But card acceptance is critical for businesses of all sizes. Uh, and like I said, it's a pretty exclusive club among people who can and do accept cards easily. And making sure we can expand that will include more people. The card revolution uh, is in full swing. Everyone likes to pay with their card. And whether that's a physical card, piece of plastic in their pocket, or a phone or a watch, the consumer has total control over how they want to pay. And more often than not, that's a card over cash. Now, with the UK, we've got a lot of listeners in the UK, and we've got listeners in the US as well. The UK seems to be considerably further ahead along that line of going cashless. You know, you've got Apple Pay, Android Pay, Google Pay, all that, you know, there's lots of ways that you can already pay. And, and whenever I go to the States, it's kind of, I still need to sign things, which, which always confuses me slightly. Does that, as a, as a business, do you, do you find that as a real challenge in sort of understanding how different countries accept payments and, and online payments and, and, and cashless payments? Well, even in just the five countries we're in, we see a pretty broad spectrum of technology adoption. You cited a good example in the U.S. being pretty far behind in EMV and contactless technology, um, and the EMV transition happening just around the time that Apple came out with Apple Pay was a good kick to get all the technology in the right place. Um, unfortunately, even big businesses, which are supposed to be prepared for technology transitions, did pretty terribly in the U.S. They weren't prepared. They're old, outdated hardware and software wasn't as updatable as they thought, uh, and people were having a pretty bad experience, and Square really thrived in providing contactless and super-fast chip card transactions. Um, in other places, UK, uh, Australia as well, where we see very high penetration of cards and very high contactless use, there are other challenges. Just trying to make sure it's a delightful experience, uh, making sure small traders can get their hands on the tools, because the exclusive club of card acceptance is, is a global phenomenon. And as a business, how do you, one of the things that, you know, I talk to small businesses or you talk to people that run their own business, and it's that sense of, of it always seems to be the micropayments thing that holds everybody back in that sort of all those little fees and all those sort of things that tick along and that meant getting the carbon readers were expensive and, and all that sort of stuff. How have you, is it the reluctance of the banks to be able to solve that or have you just solved it or have you just kind of said, well, we'll worry about that later? Uh, I can't explain what the bank's issues are, some combination of reluctance or outdated technology or just a different point of view on who they're serving and why. Serving small businesses is an accumulation of many, many small opportunities, many, many millions and millions of small opportunities, and serving businesses of that scale requires an efficiency, requires a self-serve product, requires very clear pricing that you can publish. Uh, most businesses that serve the payments industry today have a very hands-on sales-based negotiation with each customer, signing them up, up uh, to contracts, negotiating terms on a variety of uh, hardware and software and services, payments and fees and maintenance fees. 
Uh, and we've had to strip all of that away to serve millions of people at the same time. And that means our prices are published on our website, which you can't really find throughout the banking industry. Uh, it means that you can buy our products either from our website or from, from retailers and get them set up without ever talking to someone at Square. No lines at the bank. You really just never have to contact us to get started. So when you build a self-serve product, you're just forced to be as upfront and straightforward as possible. Now, one of the things, obviously, your role must entail is looking at new ways of paying and new technologies. And I'm not sort of necessarily asking what Square is doing, but can you tell us a little bit what you're seeing about the general industry is doing? Is it, is it just contactless? Are we still very much focused on that with a piece of plastic? Or do you see that there are a multitude of different alternatives and opportunities coming down the line? If so, can you tell us what they are? Sure, both, both are true. There's still a long way to go in getting to card acceptance to all small businesses and individuals in all the markets we operate in. Uh, they just don't have the basics. And whether it's a piece of plastic in your pocket or in your phone or in your watch, the, the card economy is real. Consumers like to pay how they want to pay. They want their rewards. They want their miles. They want it direct to their debit account so they can manage their finances more closely. The credit card phenomenon uh, has a, a a lot of legs to it and, and a lot of room to expand for consumers. Uh, but people continue to use their phones for a variety of things, including peer-to-peer -peer payments and other money transfers. Uh, uh, wearables still haven't found their place in this economy, uh, and there are lots of things that we see throughout Asia for phone-based payments that are probably inevitable globally. They still haven't found their foot in all markets. Um, the way we keep track of that is observing, talking to customers, and making sure that we're running a system that is on modern hardware and software so we can update and be flexible. You talk about some of the Chinese examples there. Can you, can you give us some things that you think are really interesting that you think will eventually creep out of, of China? Uh, the peer-to-peer -peer payments I don't think is a uniquely Chinese phenomenon. We, uh, we have a great service in the US in the Cash App. Um, there are many other ways to do this globally. So peer-to-peer -peer payments I think is a, a good phenomenon that is great on a mobile phone. Some of the things that are interesting to me are the apps that can happen within those peer-to-peer -peer payment services, something that WeChat and Alipay have done particularly well, enriching that mobile experience to be beyond just a peer-to-peer -peer payment, uh, something that can be served up by a business. So we're keeping track of how the point of sale is fluid between the business owner's countertop and also into the consumer's hand at the same time. Now, if you look at companies like Amazon with their Amazon Go stores, they're kind of trying to remove the cashier and, and that payment process altogether. Do you think that that is a large-scale mass adoption sort of thing that we'll see in the future? Or do you think that's still very much a niche experiment? I think their vision is an interesting one. Uh, and as long as your vision is that people will continue to interact in physical spaces out in the world and not just sit on their couch and order things, uh, I think there will be an evolving sense of how technology facilitates the people and the space and the technology and the information. Uh, I don't know that it is a bunch of cameras trained on people walking through stores through turnstile. Uh, I hope for something a little bit more personal and something more scalable to businesses of all sizes. And if you could do one thing within your role at Square to try and make paying for things a lot easier, what, what would that be? Boy, I think I can do a lot of things and will continue to. Um, you really have to establish trust between the buyer and seller about what's available, what they're being charged, and making sure that people's identity is both protected but also known. Um, so we have to be rock solid on trust throughout, really good on transparency between buyers and sellers. And some of these invisible payment schemes 
uh, I don't think inspire that much confidence. That there's this uncertainty as you're scrolling through a store, what's watching you, and and what can how it can read your cart. I think you need a little bit more certainty between a buyer and seller because there are these little micro contracts of agreement that have to be reinforced by good hardware and software. And I think we can do a good job of that as we have in the past. I suppose that's kind of that moment when you're in a, a hotel room and you kind of think, can I pick up that little bottle of vodka or is it gonna charge me or what have you? It's exactly right. Those little breaches of trust I think add up and Square has done well on this and I don't think the banking industry has yet. If you follow Pocketlin editor Chris Hall on Instagram, you'll know one thing. He likes running and lots of it. So it become no surprise then that Chris, over the last couple of weeks, has been running with the new Garmin Phoenix 6 watch to see whether it's as good as the company says it is. But who's it for? What are the good bits, the parts that could be improved? And overall, what's the verdict on the new watch? Basically, should you get one? Chris, let's start with the good. What do you like about the new watch from Garmin? Well, I'm going to annoy you. I'm not going to talk about the good. I'm going to tell you a little story instead. And it's a story about Garmin, because as soon as you say Garmin, you immediately now think about sports devices because they have this hugely long heritage of making lots of different running and multi-sport watches. But I think the best per the best place to start with for this watch is as a smartwatch, because that's what people are talking about all the time. Does it do this? Does it do that? Well, the, the thing that Garmin have been doing over the over the past few years is, is broadening their platform so that it will support a lot of extra features that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a sports watch. So on this particular device, you get Garmin Pay, which will allow you to pay just like you would with an Apple Watch. Uh, it doesn't support as many banks, but if you're really keen to pay with your watch, it's not very hard to open an account that will work with the system. It will also support music, and this is this is quite a big move. And this is one of the things that Garmin has recently brought to its devices is the ability to move over playlists from a range of popular streaming services like Spotify or Deezer or, or uh, Amazon Music, connect to a pair of Bluetooth headphones so you can listen to the music, control all of that from your watch without having to take your phone with you. And then there's everything else that you'd expect from a smartwatch, like the notifications and the ability to do quick replies on messages that you get and those sorts of things. It does miss out on some of the stuff that you might get on uh, Wear OS or on the Apple Watch. Like there's no voice control, for example, so that you can't press a button and say, hey, Garmin, do this. That that just doesn't exist. So I think that's an important thing to understand in the first place is when you're buying this watch, you're not necessarily buying a watch that's only for running. You're buying a watch that will very much do everything. Which is traditionally what Garmin, as you said at the beginning, what Garmin would do. You'd, you'd buy you know, the forerunners and things like that. It was just for, I'm going out a run, I do a lot of running, and this is the watch I need to get. And so now that's changed. But this, yeah, so it, this is a, an evolution that's been happening over the past few years. And um, the Phoenix is their leading watch. It's designed for people who like the outdoors. And their head, the headline feature really that makes it different from the top forerunner devices, the Forerunner 945, is that it has a 14-day battery life. And that's not 14 days not doing anything. That's 14 days of doing everything. So you, all of those smartwatch functions that I've just mentioned, you can be doing that. You can be sleep tracking. You can go for a couple of runs and rides, and you will easily get over a week out of it. So for example, I had two runs and two hour-long rides mixed in seven nights of sleep tracking, and it was still telling me that I had four or five days of battery life left. So how's it managed to do that? Because I wear an Apple Watch, and if I get to midnight, it's kind of pretty much dead. Well, <laughs> the big difference is in the display and the display technology. 
because the thing that you'll notice about the Apple Watch is it is incredibly vibrant. There's a lot of punch. It has a glorious display. Yes. And other devices don't have that. But that's really what is eating a lot of this battery life. Now, Apple were excited to add always on display, but the on Garmin devices, the display is never off. It doesn't go off. It's always showing you the time. It's always showing you any information. You can you can customize this as much as you like, and you can change the interface and you know have it telling you everything that you want. I mean, at the moment, I've got my heart rate and my altitude and the barometer, uh, which is rising, which is good because it means the rain's going to stop. Um, it shows me weather, and it's also telling me I've got eleven days of battery life left. And you, but you can mix this up, and you can have anything you want in there, and. Because this display isn't as vibrant and it isn't as punchy and the blacks aren't as deep and the colors aren't, they don't jump out at you, it doesn't use anywhere near the sort of power that it, that, that conventional smartwatches do. I mean, it's also in quite a big case and that will put some people off because they will say this watch is just too big for me. But me being a sort of uh, adventurer. adventurer type There we person, go. Look, we both yeah, agreed on I'm, that. Adventurer. I'll give you that credit there. I'll I'll wear the watch because of what it says about me. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter. But I'll wear the watch. Now let's talk about sports quickly. I mean, we shouldn't we shouldn't skip over sports because a lot, large part of this watch is about the sport tracking, and there are some very advanced features in here, and there are some very basic features. And everything from tracking a simple run for a beginner is very well covered with very accurate GPS and heart rate monitoring. There are also a lot of other metrics in there that take all of the data that you collect from the altitude changes and your cadence, you know, the, the speed at which your feet are landing on the ground, these sorts of things. And they evolve all of this information to build up a huge picture of what's actually going on with your body physiologically as you're running. And from this information, you can say, this is where my training should be going. This is what I should be doing and drawing lots of conclusions from it. It's not just about this is how fast I ran and this is where I went. It's about using that data to give you something else. And a big part of this is about how fatigued you are and how well rested you are. So I'm just going to focus on these bits because there's a new function in here called body battery that's quite interesting. Body battery is about telling you how tired you are. And you probably you probably know how tired you are and you probably think, oh yeah, I'm tired today or I'm feeling great today. But this really sort of quantifies that information and it takes your 24 seven activity, motion that you're going through, your heart rate elevations. It can detect stress by seeing, well, you're sitting down and you're not doing anything, but your heart rate is high. Therefore, you are probably stressed about something. Maybe it's too much work. Maybe your calendar's too full, whatever it is. But then when you get up and do your activities, it has all of that detailed information about that activity as well. And it can build a complete picture of how you're expending your energy through the day. Then using sleep tracking, it can also draw draw a picture out of how well you're resting and recovering. So you have a very interesting picture of your day so you can understand how drained you are, how well recovered you are, whether you should run today, whether you should just have a rest day and those sorts of things. And that's put... Also, you know, in the context of a device that can say all of your workouts recently have been low aerobic, so you're maintaining your fitness, but you're not getting any better. You might want to throw in some higher quality runs and stuff like that. So there's information. Yes, there's lots of information. It's There's the potential to get confused, but at the same time, you can ignore as much of it as you want. You don't have to click through those menus. You don't have to look at those graphs. You don't have to do anything. If you just want to run it, go out, run your personal best, 
wear in your Garmin, it will give you all of the information you need when you there need it. There we go. Right, now you seem to be waxing lyrical about this, and we've already taken quite a lot of time to tell us all the good things. There must be something that you don't like. Well, I mentioned the size is fairly big, and I've just been talking about body battery at a feature and how great it is, and this is the big problem. Trying to sleep in this watch is a bit of an obstacle because, I mean, it's a huge watch. And I'm lying there in bed at night, rolling over, thinking, why am I still wearing my watch? I'm wearing my watch because I want this data. And this is the biggest problem with it. What you know, A big part of what this watch will do for you and the data it will give you comes down to having to wear it at night. And I just don't think that wearing big, chunky watches at night is really that comfortable. So I would rather see a separate sleep tracker, something like a slipper that you can just put on, not a slipper, you know, just something soft yeah. and comfortable. Sheepskin line. Well, a lot of them have like under not... the pillow sort of things, don't they? Yeah, but I mean, I've, I've been quite interested in a soft wearable rather than wearing a uh, reinforced titanium and <laughs> sapphire glass. Now, if you're watch. not uh, looking, if you don't look like an adventurer, you're not a sort of a Dwayne Johnson, is there a smaller size of this or is it just one size fits all? There, There's actually a blistering array of options. There is... Um, there are a range of different sizes and there is an S model that comes in slightly smaller and then there is an X which is slightly larger. The X is huge, too big for me to wear. Uh, that also affects the prices, but there are also different versions that have slightly different features on. Um, one of the things to watch out for is whether you want the Wi-Fi connectivity and the mapping. Um, but if you, if you, when you come down to the balance of it, there is a model in the middle, the, the Phoenix 6 Pro, which I think is probably the best. That's around 599. It's expensive, but it's a lot of watch. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on? It really will help raise our profile and let others know you liked it too. Until next Friday, pip pip. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.